This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Good morning. The first reading is taken from Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Hear the word of the Lord. Speak to God. Good morning. The, sec- uh, the second reading is uh, Psalm 104 verses 1 to 24, and can be found in the Pew Bibles on page 483. 483. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with honour and majesty, wrapped in light as with a garment. Stretch out the heavens like a tent, You set the beams of your chambers on the waters. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride on the wings of the wind. You make the winds your messengers, fire and flame your ministers. You set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken. You cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. At your rebuke they flee, at the sound of your thunder they take to flight. They rose up to the mountains, ran down to the valleys, to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forward in the valleys, they flow between the hills giving drink to every wild animal. The wild asses quench their thirst. By the streams, the birds of the air have their habitation. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the cattle and plant for people to use, to bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine, and bread to strengthen the human heart. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests. The stork has its home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. 
The rocks are a refuge for the conies. You have made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You make darkness and it is night when all the animals of the forest come creeping out. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. People go out to their work and to their labour until the evening. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. The word of the Lord. Father, speak to us through your scriptures. Give us minds to welcome your word and wills determined to follow. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, every Sunday in January, we are looking at a psalm and its subject. And today it is Psalm 104, which was just read, uh, or most of it. And the subject is creation. Now have a think, which two people in the whole world do you think could most quickly sell out the Opera House for a lecture on nature and creation? Well, I think uh, David Attenborough would do it in five minutes and I think possibly the former QI anchor Stephen Fry wouldn't be far behind because uh, these are the sort of people that many, many people are only too happy to go and listen to. They, are, they have the rare combination of knowledge and wisdom and humanity and the gift of the gab. And I think those two would pack the punters in very quickly. But sadly, both of these giants are atheists and for the same reason. There are things in nature that seem so cruel that they feel there cannot possibly be a god. Now, one example for Attenborough is that there is a mite in some African river which gets into swimmers' eyes and turns them blind. And for Fry, one of the examples that I've heard him talk about is a wasp which lays its eggs in another insect's brain head so that the host's living brain becomes food for the wasp grubs as they hatch. Now, both these men, unfortunately, are too confident about their own ideas. They assume that if there was a god, he would think the way they think and he would have created the world the way they think the world ought to be. But the world is different and therefore there cannot be a god. I think it's rather strange because both of them are at the same time absolutely amazed at the wonders and the beauty and the majesty of nature, but it would seem they are more impressed by the suffering than they are by the magnificence and all the things that are attractive and impressive about creation. Well, that's them and that's their business. What about you? What does thinking about creation do for you? Over the past year, my wife has spent quite a lot of really hard time with a young woman who is struggling with an immensely difficult personal battle. But this troubled soul often goes out into the bush because she is awed by its beauty and the peace that she finds there, and she's reminded, she says, of both God's goodness and his power. So she goes to the bush for survival. Well, what does looking at creation do for you? 
the author of Psalm 104 has got no doubts. When he contemplates the world around him, he says to God, you stretch out the heavens, you set the earth on its foundations so that it shall never be shaken, you make streams gush forth in valleys, you water the mountains, the earth is satisfied, you cause the grass to grow and plants for people. In other words, he says, look, it's all here because God wanted it here. And uh, it's no surprise to find him exclaiming, Oh, Lord, my God, you are very great. So, Psalm 104. That's him. But what about you? What do you see when you contemplate creation? St Paul got a very clear message when he did this. He wrote these words to the Romans. What can be known about God is plain, because God has shown it. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So for Paul, creation shows there is a creator God. Everything in this world is created by something else. Everything. When a scientist begins to study some phenomenon, he never thinks, oh, something might have caused this, but he always assumes something did cause this, because everything in this universe has a cause. Now, the universe exists, so something or someone must have created it. The universe could not make itself when there was no stuff here to make it out of and there was no mind to think about how it might be made. For the believer, on the one hand, the existence of a cruel wasp could be a problem. But it's nothing like the problem created for the atheist by the simple existence of the universe. And this was as obvious in Paul's day as it is today. What can be known about God is seen through the things he has made. Now, if you've got children coming towards the end of primary school, then you will probably had a conversation something like this. Uh, God created the universe, but who caused God? Answer, nobody. He's always existed. But how can that be since everything is caused by something else? Answer, in this created universe, yes. But outside this universe, outside time, there is and always was, always is, always will be timeless, eternal existence where God just always is. Or we're left with a mindless universe creating itself out of nothing. They do look like the two only options. Well, both the author of Psalm 104 and St Paul have no doubt which side of that choice they happen to be. For them, nature shouts out, God exists and he has created it all. Okay, that's St Paul and that's the author of Psalm 104. But what do you think when you contemplate creation? I think it's helpful to uh, do this little exercise. Imagine you're living a thousand years ago. 
And so you've never heard anything about the development of the world, about the Big Bang, you know nothing about fossils or dinosaurs or tectonic plates. A thousand years ago, what could you believe about the beginning of the world and how it all got here? Would you guess that it had happened all at once or step by step? Would it all have been made by one God or would you think that there were several contributors? Or would you imagine that the world created itself? What might you have imagined back in that pre-scientific era? Most ancient societies, maybe all ancient societies, had a story. Many of them have left those stories behind, a creation myth. But they look so, today when we look at them, so embarrassingly naive. You do wonder, did anyone really ever believe them? If we just look at the, uh, the main stories from the two of the, uh, the greatest ancient civilizations in Babylon, Marduk was said to have sliced the original being, Tiamat, in two from top to bottom and laying half down, thus forming the earth, veins become rivers and the other half is being thrown up in the air to form the sky. Did people ever really believe it? And in Egypt... Ra's tears became people who then behaved so badly that he retired from earth and became the sun. Did people really believe it? And by comparison, the Bible story in Genesis chapter 1 is very sophisticated, despite also being written originally for a pre-scientific society. In Genesis, we find there's just one God. Uh, he's in total control. It's step by step, each step building on the previous one. But Genesis' superiority is much more than just sophistication. Notice this awesome feature. I spent some time this last week looking up various uh, sites on Wikipedia that uh, purported to know a lot more about this subject than me, not that that's very difficult. I read that the scientists are agreed that the world has got to where we are today by an endless succession of changes, but there are four, for me, standout stages, and in the chronological order they are. Number one, four and a half billion years ago, the Earth was almost entirely covered by ocean. Genesis says, in the beginning, when God created, darkness covered the deep while a wind swept over the waters. How did the Genesis author know the water covered everything at the start? Wikipedia continues. A billion years later, three and a half billion years ago, life began where? In the ocean. Genesis says, and God said, let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures. How did the Genesis author know life began in the water? Wikipedia again. <clears throat> the continents then appeared up from the ocean floor as the tectonic plates moved further and further. Genesis, and God said, 
let the waters be gathered together and let the dry land appear. I am in awe. And then half a billion years ago, life on land began. Trilobites, unless there was something even earlier than them, followed by plants and animals and birds, and finally, humans. Birds appear earlier in the Genesis list, but otherwise the order is staggeringly accurate. God made the wild animals in Genesis, then God said, let us make man in our image. So the four huge facts. At first, water covers everything. Then dry land came later, not at the start. Then life began in the sea, not on land. And then, finally, human race comes last. Now that's what the combined study of fossils and chemistry has led the scientists to believe today. And what's the order of these things in Genesis? First, there was just wind sweeping over the waters. Then the dry land appeared. Then the earth brought forth vegetation. Then the waters brought forth swarms of living creatures. And then birds flew above the earth. And then came animals. And finally came people. And the question that shouts in my mind is, how did the unscientific author of Genesis 1 who knows when, a thousand years perhaps before Jesus, how did he get it so right? Now, of course, there are other features of the Genesis story which on the surface do not tie in with the scientists' beliefs quite as simply. And the explanation is a bit too complicated for a sermon, but do ask if you are interested, because there is an explanation. But what is astonishing, mind-blowingly astonishing, is how close to each other are the beliefs of the scientists in Genesis 1 concerning these four basic events of creation. Now, just for me, I cannot for a second, get myself to imagine that the author of Genesis got it right by four amazing lucky guesses. Sheer flukes, huge flukes. To me, that is simply totally unbelievable. The only explanation in my mind is that the author was told, and that means, of course, told by God. Genesis 1 was inspired. Now, I've asked you four times, so I should ask myself, what do I think when I see creation? At about age 12, I began to doubt my childhood atheism and increasingly fearing that God might exist because the existence of this amazing world that is run everywhere by what we call nature's universal rules. And so I came to agree with St Paul, not that I knew that he'd written it, that creation shows that God exists. And then came a second new belief a few years later, trust the Bible. If God inspired the author of Genesis about creation, then I should also believe whatever else the Bible tells us about creation. And it does tell us something, something rather immense. We heard it read in the first Bible reading today. In Christ, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, 
and in him all things hold together. Or John, in the opening of his chapter, our other reading today, all things come came into being through him and the world came into being through him. So creation not only means that God exists, but that the part of God that became human, that is the Christ at Christmas, was part of the creator, not the creation. And so he is part of what is keeping it going today. He is part of the force which keeps gravity being gravity. Evaporation happening when the heat goes on the water. New life when male and female are joined. He is the one who keeps it going, so boats float and planes fly, and he's part of what gives us our climate. And if we ignore these, what we call rules of nature, for instance of gravity and climate, etc., of course we will suffer. We cannot expect God to save us if we blithely step off the top of a ten-storey building and expect not to be splattered at the bottom, or if we create too much greenhouse gas and expect the world not to suffer. So what exactly is God doing now in his creation? Christ who is part of it coming here and part of what holds it together. What is he doing now? As he keeps all what we call rules of nature going. Well, Psalm 104. From your lofty abode you water the mountains and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. So why then... Do we have this long, grinding drought and terrifying fires? Is it, as Israel Folau recently suggested, because God is punishing us for our collective rejection of him? Well, in the Old Testament, God's promise to the people of Israel was a physical prosperity if they obeyed him, and physical punishment if they rejected him. But that is not the New Testament promise. Our arrangement is spiritual, not physical. That was for Israel. It's not the promise to the church. However, if the promise of earthly prosperity or punishment then is not for us, that does not mean that such things are not of great interest to God. He is extremely interested in us and our life, our prosperity, our good, our bad. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Of course God is interested and concerned with the provision of that. St Paul urged us to let our requests be made known to God. And James wrote to his readers, you do not have because you do not ask or because you ask wrongly. So for us, let there be the resolution to be strong in praying for drought breaking rain for the nation, for safety for those fighting or fleeing the fires, for spiritual wake-up for thousands who have gladly ignored God until now, 
and that the Attenboroughs and Fries of this world will think again. And let us be consistent in those prayers as we look for God to both teach us whatever lessons he wants us to learn, teach us to depend upon him and not relax into that confidence that we've got it all sewn up, and ask him to work his purposes out in us, around us, and throughout our world. Let us be strong in praying for the creation and those of us who live in it. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.